Judges chapter 3 verse 7. Judges chapter 3 verse 7. Last week we covered a lot between Judges chapter 1 verse 1 and Judges chapter 3 verse 6. And the reason we could cover so much ground last week, and we're not going to nearly cover that much ground for the rest of our study of Judges, is because that part of Judges is sort of like a visitor center that orients us to what the rest of the book is talking about. Many of you know I love Civil War history and have been to Gettysburg many times, and I always suggest to folks who go to the battlefield of Gettysburg for the very first time that the very first place you want to go is the visitor center. You, you want to see the electric map and you want to orient yourself to the battlefield because if you just start wandering around the battlefield, much of the 1,300 monuments and memorials and all of that is not going to make any sense to you. But if you go to the visitor center first and you get oriented, then the battlefield is going to make some kind of sense to you. And you're going to know sort of where you're at at all times on the battlefield. That's the purpose of Judges chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 3 verse 6. It was a way to orient us to what we're going to confront for the rest of the book. And that simply is there's a cycle going on. The cycle is this. God wanted his people to abandon themselves to him. They chose substitutes over him. They chose ritual over reality. They chose formalism over faith. And they substituted in their lives the worship of idols and graven images and all kinds of things. And because of that, God said, you will will be disciplined. You, You will feel the pain of walking away from a relationship with me and abandoning me. It will cost you something. And somewhere along the line, in their pain... They would cry out for help. And God, in his compassion and pity and mercy, would send deliverers to his people to deliver them from whoever God had chosen to come into their lives to, in a sense, oppress them or bring some kind of discipline in their lives. And and then the land, the Bible says, would have rest for so many years and then the cycle would once again repeat itself. And so that's sort of what Judges chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 6 is telling us. And we weren't introduced to any judges last week. And let's remember something. A judge in this context is not somebody that wears a long black robe and has a white wig on. A judge here is not primarily someone that just deals in judicial matters. They had a varied role. They, they could be partly judicial. They could be military. Uh, they could be spiritual. It, it, it just depended on what the nation needed at the time. But God would raise up these judges or deliverers, leaders, if you will, within the nation of Israel. And tonight we're going to meet three of them, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. So let's dive into it tonight. The first thing we see In Judges chapter 3, verse 7, is once again the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Again, as we shared last week, God is the only one that can fill this vacuum or void in a human being's life. 
And if I do not fill that vacuum or void with God in my relationship with Him, I'm going to seek to fill that vacuum with other things. And that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. Because they chose not to allow God to fill the vacuum, they still needed to fill the vacuum with someone or something. And so they started to worship idols and become involved in all of this false worship that was just an abomination. And they forgot the Lord. And, and we talked even last week about how spiritual amnesia will lead to spiritual abandonment. And why we have to continually focus and keep our relationship with God fresh and current and in the moment. Because if we don't, it's going to get old. And, and, and we're going to always talk about our relationship with God in the past tense. And, and this is what used to be and the way it used to be. And God never wants that to happen. And yet that's what happened to the nation of Israel. So because they worshipped and served Baal, notice the Bible says in verse 8, the Lord was furious with Israel and turned them over to King Cushan. First of all, again, just let me touch on this because we talked a little bit about this last week. When the Bible talks about God's fury, we've got to remember something. God's love for us burns hot. He never emotionally disengages in us. He never pulls back from us emotionally in any way to ease the hurt and pain when we walk away from him and abandon him like as human beings many times we do to protect ourselves. Many times if we see a relationship starting to go downhill, we will begin to pull away because if the relationship eventually splits, we don't want to feel all that pain. God never does that with us. He never emotionally disengages from us. So when the Bible talks about his fury, yeah, he's furious. He's never going to be like the spouse who the other spouse comes home and says, I just needed to finally inform you that I'm having an affair. I'm seeing somebody else. And the other spouse goes, oh, you know, you win some, you lose some. That's not going to be God's response when we just say, you know what, God, I found someone else in my life. I found something else in my life. So just deal with it. God's just not going to just say, oh, well, you win some and you lose some. No, as we saw last week, he will come after us. He will pursue us because he will never let go of us. And what God will do and what we see in the book of Judges is God then will do this. He will bring something into our lives so that we do not remain comfortable in the sin or disobedience or rebellion that we find ourselves in. That's why he turned them over to this guy named Kushan. Because it was not salvation, but in God's wisdom he knew that that maybe by being oppressed by this guy would, would start to loosen their grip on, on this Baal and this false worship that they had. And that's sometimes true in our lives. That that sometimes because God binds himself to us as his people and will not allow us to become cozy, if you will, in our infidelity or unfaithfulness, he might bring something into our lives that forces us to lose our grip on something that is coming between us and him. that That is not allowing us to become all that he created us to be. And, and, and you and I may be even here tonight. And there may be some of us here who we've got to hold on something. That we're not willing to let go. But we know, just like we just sang, I need to be willing to surrender that. 
And God may be orchestrating my circumstances right now in my life to make me a little uncomfortable. To be feeling a little pressure, a little pain. Not because he doesn't love me, but because he does love me. And he knows that as long as I hold on to that thing, whatever it is, it's going to keep me from enjoying my relationship with him and living life to the fullest. So God will bring things into my life to hopefully get me to release that, whatever it is, and surrender it all to him. And that's exactly what the purpose of turning his people over to the oppression of Cushan for eight years was all about in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. One of the things that this reminds us of is that the Bible teaches that we may enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, the book of Hebrews says. Yeah, sin is pleasurable for a season, but there's going to come a point where as we sin and as we walk away with God, it's not going to be any fun anymore. And what we thought we could manage and control and take care of and all of that, all of a sudden is going to be much bigger than what we ever thought. Sin's going to take us further than we ever wanted to go when it all starts out. That's why the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard because God wants to to bring that into our lives in order to turn us around. The story of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke is a great illustration of that. He he walked away from his the love of his father and he suffered some pain for it. But it was through that pain and it was through the consequences of him walking away that he came to his senses and said, "What am I doing? I need to go back to my father." And the father was there to welcome him when he came back. That's why Jesus told Saul on the road to Damascus, you hurt yourself by kicking against the goads. That God will bring things into my life and if I continue to struggle and strive against him rather than just resting and surrendering in him as we just sung about, then I probably will be uncomfortable. But if God's making you and I uncomfortable, it's only because he loves us so very much and knows what's best for us. You'll notice He turned them over to King Cushan, and they were his subjects for eight years. Verse 9, when the Israelites cried out for help to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who rescued them. A couple things. First of all, we certainly hear Israel's cry. God, help! And I want you to notice something. This cry was not a cry due to their repentance due to the fact that the light bulb came on and they go, you know what, God, we were all wrong and we're going to get our lives right. No, this was just a cry of misery. This was just a cry of pain. This was just a cry of, I don't like the circumstances. I don't like the consequences. It's like the folks who really aren't sorry, so to speak, for what they did. They're just sorry they got caught. They're just sorry they're suffering the consequences. And that was true. But what I want you to see in this, again, is the compassion and mercy of God. Because even though they didn't repent, even though they didn't get rid of their idols, even though what what Kushan did didn't necessarily totally loosen up their grip that they had in their lives, it did cause them to cry out to the Lord. And when they cried out to the Lord, the Lord was there. In His compassion and mercy... He was there and he sent them a deliverer because our God is a God who seeks to deliver us and doesn't want to see us stay in that miserable, painful circumstance forever. And so the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who rescued them. It just reminds us too of just the grace of God. 
that God gives us so many times in our lives what we don't deserve. We, we can't earn it. We can't ever pay it back. It's just a gift. And these delivers were gifts from God to his people. But I want you to see this also in verse 10. The key to this deliverer being able to do what he did in the nation of Israel is because the Lord's Spirit empowered him and he led Israel. And what you see in verse 10 is Israel's oppressor and God's power side by side. Why do I say that? But Because if you study this King Kushan, and I'm not even going to say the rest of his name, because really the rest of his name is just actually a description. Here, here's what the guy's name is. Kushan, a man who's doubly wicked. Wow. Okay, he wasn't just bad. The Bible says he was double bad. He was double bad news. So you can imagine what it would have been like underneath this guy for eight years. And yet when God's spirit came upon Othniel, this deliverer, the Bible says it was God's spirit that empowered him to lead Israel and to, in a sense, overtake the oppressor that was oppressing Israel. And it reminds all of us in our lives about the importance, in fact, the absolute necessity that we've got to learn to live our lives every day by the power of the Spirit and not in our own power and strength. If we're going to overcome our oppressors, if we're going to see victory in our lives, if we're going to make progress in our lives spiritually, we have got to get to the point where we learn what it means to live in the sphere of the Spirit and by His power every minute. And that was exactly the key to Othniel's success, if you will, as a judge or deliverer in Israel. You'll notice if you read down through it, there's nothing flashy about Othniel. It wasn't like the Bible said he was the biggest guy in Israel. He was the most handsome guy in Israel. He graduated first in his military class. There was nothing like that at all. It was he was empowered by the Spirit of God. That was his key to being a leader in Israel and being able to deliver Israel from the oppressiveness of King Kushan. And the same thing is true in our lives. We've got to, that's a key verse. We, we, right now, hopefully, the Lord's Spirit is empowering us. I know Brian well enough to know that he doesn't ever seek to get up here without asking the Spirit of God to empower what he does. I hope I never get up here and, and try to do what I do without the Spirit of God empowering. And that's the way God wants us to live our lives. It's sort of illustrated by a sailboat. I need to learn to lift my sail up every day And let the Spirit of God then blow me where he wants to blow me and take me where he wants to take me. My responsibility is to put up my sail every day and surrender to God and say, God, whatever your Spirit wants, wherever your Spirit wants to take me, whatever your Spirit wants to produce in my life, I'm just putting the sail up, you take me. And that's exactly the secret of why Othniel was used by the Lord. And so you'll notice when he went to do battle, the Lord handed over to him... King Kushan. Yeah, a guy who was doubly wicked, but a guy who could not stand in the presence of the Lord's power. You see, I don't care, nor does God care in our lives what is oppressing us, what is causing us defeat, 
what is causing us discouragement or anything else in our lives, we've got to understand and acknowledge and realize every day that the Spirit of God and the power of God is greater than anything that we will ever come in contact with. It doesn't matter how doubly wicked it is. It doesn't matter how bad it is, how long it's been. The Spirit of God and the power of God can deliver us from all that oppresses us in our lives. And that's one of the lessons in the book of Judges. I want to read some verses to you that talk about the importance of living by the power of the Spirit. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, Zechariah writes, Not by human might nor by human power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. But you will receive power, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. Paul said, my conversation and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Paul Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure, this relationship with God in clay jars. Speaking of our human bodies that are so fragile and frail, so that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. And then finally in Corinthians, he says, towards this goal, I also labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works in me. Hopefully that's our desire as well. That as I struggle and as I move forward and as I make progress in my life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am doing so according to his power that is always powerfully at work in me. And that was true in Judges chapter 3, verse 10, in the life of Othniel. Before we leave Othniel and move on to Ehud tonight, I want to share with you this. You'll notice again in verse 10 that the Lord's Spirit empowered him. He led Israel, and when he went to do battle, the Lord handed over to him King Cushan, and he overpowered him, and the land had rest for 40 years. Here we get a glimpse in the book of Judges of God as the Lord of history, a picture of God's way in history in miniature. What do I mean by that? Well, when God's own people are unfaithful, he raises up an instrument of his discipline to humble them and to try to bring them back to him. Then the time comes when the instrument becomes too big for his international britches, when the instrument deludes himself into thinking he's the conductor or director of the orchestra rather than God, and then God must humble the instrument that refuses to be his instrument. And if you go back through history, you will find that this is exactly what God does. Even in the book of Daniel, God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to be an instrument for him, And Nebuchadnezzar got too big for his britches, and God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And God will give power, and give position, and give authority, as long as people are willing to be his instruments. But if they begin to puff up and get too big, he will replace them, and he will bring them down and replace them with somebody else. And that's been human history. The great kingdoms. You know, where are the great kingdoms of Egypt and Greece and and Rome and all of them? They've passed away because they ascended to 
to the power of the world and then they couldn't handle it very well and God would bring somebody else along that would overtake them and see, could they do a better job? This has been the way God has worked down through history and you see this throughout the book of Judges. I do want to share this in verse 11. This is a great gift from God and a great opportunity for Israel, but they did not take advantage of it because the Bible says, though they were oppressed by this guy who was doubly wicked for eight years, guess what? Through the deliverance of Othniel, the land had rest for 40 years. 40 years they had opportunity. And this is the way God wants it. Here is what's available to Israel and to us at all times. God wants us to enjoy rest and peace. And he doesn't want us to always be all churned up and and, and all upset and all, you know, tied up in knots. But the way that that ends in our lives is when we surrender to God. When we say, God, I'm not going to strive with you any longer. I'm not going to fight against you any longer. I'm just going to all to you. I surrender and I give it up. And when we do that, we experience God's rest and peace. Because the word used here is the word Shabbat, Sabbath rest. It simply means that, that we cease striving and fighting and kicking. It, it's almost like the picture of a, of a young baby that really needs to go to sleep, but is fighting sleep. And, and, and everybody knows the child needs to sleep, but the child just doesn't want to just lay its head down and close its eyes and go to sleep. Well, guess what, folks? I, I know in my life there have been times where I've been in God's arms like that baby. I didn't like what was going on. I, I, I didn't want to surrender and just turn things over to the Lord. And I was just like that baby that just refused to just stop and rest in the Lord. And so for 40 years, this is what God wanted them to enjoy. And he did give them to enjoy. And this is what God prefers to give his own. But it also places responsibility on Israel and us when we enjoy those times of rest. Because it's during these times that we need to be faithful to God. In a sense, when we need to seize these opportunities and, and take advantage of them in the right way and keep moving forward in our relationship with God. But notice something in verse 12. The Israelites didn't take advantage of these 40 years of rest because, again, it cycles back around. And again, the Bible says in Judges 3.12, they did evil in the Lord's sight. See, God wanted to give them good things, but they just refused to find their all in all in God. They, they just refused to surrender to God. They still wanted to do it their way. And so God says, fine. So just like he did with King Kushan earlier on in chapter three, notice the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because they had done evil in the Lord's sight. We are introduced here to one of the... You know, if somebody thinks that the Bible is a boring book, they've never read Judges chapter 3. This story is its pretty good. It's one of my favorites. And I'm going to read the story. I'm just going to tell the story. And, and I'm not going to cover everything in the story, but I just want to go back and cover some key things. And, and one of the things that we see in this story 
is the same thing we see throughout the book of Judges, is that in our troubles, whether it's a result of our sins or not, we have a compassionate God who actually hears our cries for help and comes to save us in our distress. So here we go. Hang on. Buckle in. Eglon formed alliances with the Ammonites and Amalekites. He came and defeated Israel, and they seized the city of date palm trees. The Israelites were subject to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. First of all, can you picture this guy? Eglon. I mean, just his name. And we're going to learn in just a few verses that this guy was big. Big. I mean, his name, Eglon. I mean, it just, you know, it fits. When the Israelites cried out for help to the Lord, he raised up another deliverer for them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And we're going to come back to that. The Israelites sent him to King Eglon of Moab with their tribute payment. Ehud made himself a sword, a dagger. It had two edges and was 18 inches long. He strapped it under his coat on his right thigh. And the reason he strapped it under his right thigh is because he was left-handed. But in those days, up until even very recently in our world, left-handed people were looked down upon. It was almost like a handicap if you were left-handed. Now, not today. In fact, you folks are the only ones, if you're left-handed in your right mind, you know that, right? Yeah. Shout out for left-handed people. So... Eglon's security guard, they weren't looking for the dagger there. They would have checked the other side just assuming that everyone that's a danger is right-handed, right? So he strapped it under his coat on his right thigh. He brought the tribute payment to King Eglon of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. After Ehud brought the tribute payment, he dismissed the people who had carried it. But he went back once he reached the carved images at Gilgal, and he said to Eglon, I have a secret message for you, O King Eglon. Be quiet. All his attendants left. King Eglon's up for a good, you know, secret, just like the rest of us are. Oh, a secret. Okay, guys, leave. Which made him vulnerable. And when Ehud approached him, he was sitting in his well-ventilated upper room all by himself. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And when Eglon rose up from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled the sword from his right thigh, and drove it into Eglon's belly. And the handle went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade. For Ehud did not pull the sword out of his belly. I got some mental pictures, okay? I'll leave your imagination to take you where you want to go with that as well. And Ehud went out into the vestibule. He closed the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When Ehud had left, Eglon's servants came and saw the locked doors of the upper room. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the well-ventilated inner room. I mean, don't you love the Bible? It's for a, Hey, we think he's going to the bathroom. All right, so we're going to let him alone. And they waited so long, verse 25, they were embarrassed. Golly, he's been in there a long time. Maybe, we, you know. But he still did not open up the doors of the upper room. So finally, they took the key, opened the doors, and right before their eyes was their master sprawled out dead on the floor. And while all this was happening, the Bible says Ehud escaped. 
couple things. First of all, we need to talk about Ehud's uniqueness. Because one of the principles or lessons that we can be encouraged with from this story is that God wants to use your uniqueness. God made you unlike anyone else. You have a unique set of gifts, abilities, talents, personality, and there is no other human being exactly like you. And God wants you to celebrate your uniqueness, learn to embrace your uniqueness, and learn to use your uniqueness for the glory of God. Speaking of left-handed, even up into the Middle Ages, the Latin word for right-handed people in Latin is the word dexterous, where we get the word dexterity from, which is a very positive word. The Latin word for left-handed is the word sinister. That goes to show you that up through history, that's why people, even when they were born left-handed, they would learn to use their right hand because up through very, until very recently, Left-handed people were just sort of at a handicap. In fact, even today, you you still find that in some places. You go to a bowling alley. How hard is it for a left-handed person to find a left-handed bowling ball? You go golfing. How hard is it for you to find left-handed golf clubs? I mean, the the world is still skewed to the right-handed. And what God, I think, one of the things God is saying to all of us here and why he made a point of saying, oh, by the way, Ehud was left-handed, was to remind us that God has made us unique as well. And instead of fighting against that, embrace it and let God use your uniqueness for his glory. The other thing we learned, and I touched on this a little bit last week, is this. God deals with the dirty, mixed-up affairs of life in which his people find themselves. God is not a white-glove, standoffish God out somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you and I to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of our life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably comfortably put it together or not he is the God who delights to deliver his people even in their messes and I'm so glad for that because there are times whether it's been my fault or not I have found myself in life in some awful messes And I'm glad, just like the people and judges, that I knew that there was a God that I could cry out to and say, either I've gotten myself into a mess or through somebody else I've gotten involved in a mess. God, will you help? And I never got the response from God is, oh, you got to clean that up first before I'll get involved. That's why we tell people who are searching and and who are pre-Jesus and haven't come to Jesus yet that, that some people out there believe that I've got to clean myself up before I give myself. No. God delights in cleaning us up. In fact, he's the only one who can. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can be clean. And so I just got to give myself and all my mess and brokenness and yuck. And I just got to give it to God and let him start making something beautiful out of my life. That's what I've got to do. The tragedy of this story as it has been up to this point is look over real quickly in chapter 4, verse 1. 
that the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight after Ehud's death. You see, Ehud, sorry to say, is not a totally adequate savior. For though God brings a certain kind of salvation and help through Ehud, nothing Ehud did could change the hearts of Israel. He may have exerted some beneficial influence on them while he lived, but he could not release Israel from the bondage of sin or rip the idols out of their hearts. Here is the tragedy of the people of God. Slavery to sin. Always going back and again doing the things they've always done. And no left-handed savior spilling the guts of a foreign king can release them from that bondage. That's why it's such good news in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, when it says we have a Christ who loves us and has set us free from our sins at the cost of his own blood. For our real bondage does not consist of Moabites or overweight kings or physical and economic oppressors. No left-handed judge can break us free from our tyrant, but there is one with nail-scarred hands who can and does. The only tragedy in our story of our life is having this Savior. We do not cry to Him for help. For God has raised up for us Not just an Ehud or an Othniel, but a Savior whose name is Jesus who can save his people from their sins. And then we move to the final verse of chapter 3 tonight. And we're introduced to another judge that only one verse of the Bible is dedicated to. His name is Shamgar. I love that. And here's the lesson or message of Shamgar to us. If the message of Othniel is be empowered by the Spirit, and the message of Ehud is embrace your uniqueness, the message of Shamgar to us would be use the tools and resources that you have. Notice, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And like Ehud, delivered Israel. Now we don't know anything about Shamgar, and yet the Bible says he saved God's people. And there is something marvelous about a God like that. One who uses Shamgar's and ox goads. An ox goad was a strong pole, about eight feet long. At one end was a sharp metal point for prodding the oxen, and at the other end a spade for cleaning the dirt off of the plow. It was the closest thing that Shamgar could find to a spear. And here is a man who obeyed God and defeated the enemy, even though his resources were limited. Instead of complaining about what he didn't have, he simply gave to God and used what he did have. And when he gave it to God, the Lord used it to stand his ground against the enemy, having only a farmer's tool. Instead of a soldier's full military equipment, Mark Shamgar out as a brave man with steadfast courage. In fact, I believe if Shamgar was to stand before us tonight, his advice would be this to us. Give whatever tools you have to the Lord. Stand your ground courageously and trust God to use what's in your hand to accomplish great things for his glory. Now, I got, I got to say this, though. I got to have a little fun with Shamgar. And when you start thinking about the names of these people, 
I mean, doesn't it make some of you who are getting ready to have children want to name your sons Shamgar? And think about this guy. You know, we celebrate, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we celebrate the fact that David killed one giant Philistine. And I, that's, that's cool. This guy killed 600 Philistines. They might not have been giants, but he killed 600 of them with an ox code. Man, this guy would have been a prime candidate to be on, like, Gladiator Illustrated. You know, look at me, Shamgar. 600 Philistines. He would have been invited to, uh, to dancing with the studs, if you will, back then. You know, I, I mean, this guy was just incredible. But again, I think he's reminding us, what are the tools that you and I have to serve the Lord? God won't look at our life and say, give me what you don't have. But he will ask us to give him what we do have and let him use it. And Shamgar is a great example of that. Think about a way even this coming week, before we meet again next Tuesday, that you and I could use one or more of the tools that God has already given us to reach out in love to someone. God's instruments of deliverance seem to have an interesting, if odd, collection of tools. There's Shamgar's ox goad, which joins Ehud's dagger. Next week, we're going to talk about this gal whose name is J.L., who uses a hammer. We have Gideon's horns and torches, a woman's millstone, and a donkey's jawbone that Samson uses. God's deliverances have plenty of color and interest. And it reminds us, as we go through the book of Judges, that we should never put God in a box. We, we should never say, well, this is the way God delivers because the book of Judges is telling us God can use all kinds of different people who are far from perfect themselves, who are just giving themselves to the Lord and being empowered by the Spirit. And God can use all kinds of different instruments and tools. He doesn't need to work the same way over and over again. He's got everything at his disposal. But what we do learn from tonight in Judges chapter 3 is this. We're reminded to live in the Spirit's power, to embrace our uniqueness, and to use the tools that we have. But regardless of the instruments, let's be clear. Our God is the one who is the God able to deliver. It doesn't matter what human being he uses. It doesn't matter what instrument or tool or resource he uses. It is the God behind all of that that is the one who delivers. And as I said right at the beginning, even before Brian come out, here's an important point that I think God wants us to be reminded of. Our God is almighty and all-powerful. Therefore, there are times where God will deliver us from going through the fire. But we've got to remember that our God is so powerful all-powerful, that he can deliver us even through the fire. And we've got to remember that. If, if we truly believe in the power of God, I mean, if we truly believe in a God who is able to deliver, I believe that more than not, we would go to God first with our problems and situations rather than waiting to go to him for the last resort.
And I believe if we truly believed in the power of God, we wouldn't give Satan as much credit as we do. Because I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect our spiritual enemy, but compared to Almighty God, he is still a creation of God. And he is no match, nor are any of the demons in hell any match for the power of God. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if we truly believed in the power of God, I believe, as we sang tonight, it would be all to Jesus I surrender. If we truly believed in the power of God and what God can do and wants to do in our lives, I believe it would bring us to a place where we say, God, I'm going to stop struggling. I'm going to stop fighting you on this. God may be working in our lives to try to release whatever we're holding on to that's holding us back. And God simply wants us to turn it over to him and release it and fall down and follow him. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for the book of Judges, for the principles and truths, Lord, out of this book. This this book is not a feel-good book in any way. This book is a book about some of the darkest days in Israel's history. And yet, even as we were reminded last week, you still work in our darkest days. You work in the days where people abandon you and walk away from you and are serving idols and are in misery and pain and broken. God, you still work at all times in our lives. And we don't need to clean it up. We simply need to cry out. And give ourselves and surrender to you and let you begin to operate in our lives and make something very beautiful out of our lives. God, encourage us tonight. Encourage these folks here tonight to just continue to live by the power of the Spirit, to continue to use their uniqueness and the way you made them and to use the tools and resources that you have given them. Help us not to complain about what we don't have But help us to be more like Shamgar and just use the tools that's already in our hands. and Let you take off and take us where we will. God, continue to use our study of the book of Judges to challenge us and to encourage us and to bring us, Lord, to a whole other level spiritually with you. We pray in the precious name of Jesus, our almighty God and Savior, who set us free from our sins. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. See you next week.